Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton, and we're joined by author Tim Stratton. Tim will be reading from Catfish Alley. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed the podcast and I'm delighted to be on it. Oh, anytime. I'm just so glad you said yes. And um, everyone knows by now that I love being read too. And so the chance to have you reading to me three times during the podcast is just an absolute joy. So thank you for saying yes. And we're just going to dive right in if that's okay. Go ahead. Wonderful. Can you please tell us a bit about the book? Catfish Alley is a heist thriller which is set in Barcelona in 2014. It's the story of a washed up Scottish writer called Tommy and he runs out of money and so he's very ready to take part in a heist Um, and his job is to infiltrate a group, an arts group, who have the access codes that the robbers need and the story is how he goes about doing that. I love that as writers, we're always looking at what that next income stream might be. So um, I like that it's quite the creative one. Can we please have our first reading? Yes, this one is when Tommy's getting ready to to meet the arts group for the first time. So he's been primed, he knows what his job is, and this is him getting ready and meeting them to start with. It's time to get ready for my first meeting with the suckers. I can't deny I'm excited. 30,000 euros is a life-changing sum, for my life anyway. But it's not that. Writers, even dormant ones, live inside their heads, and this is an adventure. Technically, it's a criminal conspiracy, but no one's going to get hurt, so I don't need to pretend I'm conscience-stricken about it. I check my watch. I'll have to leave soon, so it's time to choose an outfit. I've already scoped out the bar we're meeting in. Broadway, an upmarket Art Deco bar spread over two floors, just opposite the hospital, handy for any alcohol-related accidents. Smart casual is safest, but I wonder about a subtle rebellion by turning up in jeans and t-shirt. Hey, look at me, I'm so arty, I don't need to follow the rules. Or maybe go the other way, aim for a raffles gentleman thief look and overdress. I don't really have the wardrobe for that, though. In the end, I settle on my only suit, navy blue, sharp creases, because I haven't worn it since I've been out here, and a soft-collared pale blue shirt. No tie, I'm an artist, not an accountant. The trousers are a bit loose, and I cinch the belt in a notch. I look in the full-length mirror. Not bad. It would be better with shades, but I'd look a twat turning up with them pushed back on my head on a February evening. I'll be fine without them. Does this screen distinguished foreign writer hot and worth talking to? Close enough, or as close as I can manage anyway. I nod at myself in the mirror and switch off the light before I lock the door. Let's go to work. Broadway is as classy as I remember it. It's got a nice relaxed vibe, but clean with it. Winter evenings in Barcelona are cold, whatever you might imagine about the place, and I don't have an overcoat that doesn't make me look like a tourist or a student. With only a jacket and a shirt against the chill, I'm glad to get inside. The upper floor of Broadway, with a gallery looking out over the area below, isn't that busy, and I recognise the club members immediately from the photos on their Facebook page. They're clustered round the bar, and there aren't that many of them. I can see where they might want new members. There are a couple of guys, and maybe five or six girls. I've been emailing the social secretary, Estelle, about it tonight, and she looks up as I walk over and waves at me. She takes me by the arm and leads me over to the bar. I'm so glad you could come, she says in Catalan. We don't have any writers in our group. I'm not really, I I reply in the same language. I dabble. She indicates her opinion on my Catalan by switching to fluent if heavily accented English. Here we're all artists, she says with a grin, all as good as each other. I look into her grey eyes and smile. 
She has a natural vivacity that I respond to immediately. That and the figure her green dress sets off to advantage. Her dark blonde hair is held back off her face with a clip. So what do you do? I ask, giving up on the Catalan. I'm an actress, she says. Part-time, anyway. The rest of the time I work in accounts. Her expression suggests how much she enjoys that. A tall, slender figure slides up behind her and puts a hand on her forearm. So, who have you got here? Estelle gives a brisk smile. Jome, this is Tommy. He's an English writer. I let this slide. And Tommy, meet Jome. I shake hands in what I hope is a bluff-hearty fashion. Pleased to meet you. You're an artist? He looks down his nose. An artist of the human condition, you might say. Or I might not. I have absolutely no idea what this means, and I doubt that Jome does either. I'm here as a bullshitter, and I recognise another one in front of me. Jome observes, says Estelle, and then he sometimes shares his observations. His canvas is humanity. Jome's eyes narrow. There's history between these two. I'll need to understand the dynamics of this group, particularly if I'm going to seduce Estelle. Estelle is keen to find someone else to introduce me to, and I'm hardly sorry to leave Jome behind. She beckons one of the other guys, who's introduced as Alex. He's a painter and enthusiastic about his art. He has on a black skin-tight shirt and trousers, a diamond earring and matching pendant at his open neck. I feel justified in concluding that he's gay, and I warm to him because that suggests he's not going to seduce anyone who interests me. I need not consider him a threat or a rival. I'm going to have to pick someone to try and seduce, and based on first assumptions, it's probably going to be Estelle. So... What does setting the book in Barcelona make possible? And my two-part question, where were you free to imagine and what needed to be inspired by and or stay true to place? Barcelona was an interesting place for me to set a novel because it was somewhere that I'd never actually been. And I've had quite a long career as a fantasy writer and fantasy is writing about places that don't exist, so you've never been there. So Barcelona was a a transition into the real world, but still not somewhere that I actually knew. And it was a story that came about during the first lockdown when I was stuck in my conservatory and I thought, how cool would this be to write a story that is somewhere hot, where people go to bars and hang out with their friends and just have a, a life that was completely not possible when I was writing that novel. So I was... Not that worried about writing the novel somewhere I hadn't set, that I hadn't seen. And with hindsight, maybe I should have taken that a bit more seriously. But it, I felt that gave me a bit more imaginative range. Um, I previously tried to, to set a historical novel in, in the real world. And I'd gone and done research for that on location. And actually, that killed the idea for me. I thought, I, I can't imagine this story taking place in, in this location. So I felt that I had more freedom. I had an imaginary Barcelona in my head, which I, I was supplementing with research. But I didn't feel as constrained as I would have done if I was writing somewhere that I did actually know the streets. I could create the imaginary Barcelona that I needed as I wrote. I think that's fascinating, especially when different people experience places in different ways anyway. So when we go to a place, we might... Um, any number of people will see something different, their perspective, either based on what they need or something that happened or something they noticed or whatever. So I think it's really interesting to write a place that you haven't been and an idea that that could actually free it up, even if research underpins it later. But why not? The writer does half the work, maybe the reader does at least half of the work for you. So you're you're giving them the prompts that they can create the setting in, in their head. So 
in a sense, I'm writing about their Barcelona or prompting their Barcelona from my own thoughts rather than giving them something that I know exists. For me, it was an interesting contrast to writing it in a fantasy world where nobody brings any preconceptions to the cities that I'm writing about, even if I've based them on a real city. I haven't told anyone that. But as soon as I say this is happening in Barcelona, the reader brings something of their own imagination to that, whether they've been to the city or whether they haven't. Everyone will have their own idea, even if it's hazy or nebulous, about what Barcelona is like. So you're immediately starting on a collaboration between the author and the reader. And I like having the chance to do that, which I hadn't previously been able to do with fantasy novels. What a wonderful relationship. Could we have another reading, please? Yes. So this is from slightly later on in the story where Tommy meets for the first time uh, Beatrice. He's decided that Estelle isn't the person that he's going to seduce. He's been looking at Beatrice and here they meet at an exhibition for the first time and, and have their first conversation. And here at last is Beatrice looking thoughtfully at a series of collages. These are the first things I've seen that I actually like. They consist of everyday objects photographed from unusual angles, juxtaposed in startling and sometimes alarming ways. A couple of them have fabrics attached, and the overall effect is striking in a way I can't define. I smile at Beatrice. These are the best things here, I say. Aren't they wonderful? You like them? She has on a teal sleeveless blouse to reveal an intricate swirling tattoo covering the entirety of her upper left arm. Her hair is pinned up on one side. A brown suede miniskirt sits above black tights. Don't you, I say. I shouldn't say it, but these are the only things here that I would buy. I'm struck by a thought. Although, of course, I haven't seen yours yet, and I'm sure they're beautiful too. Lucky escape there. She smiles and her eyes light up. Suddenly I wonder how I could ever have found her ordinary. These are mine, she says. Her cheek is slightly flushed. Well, I didn't know, I laugh. So you can tell I meant it and I wasn't just flattering you. Her eyes narrow. You don't think I could do this work, but it's just a hobby, like... She breaks off, but her eyes involuntarily slide towards Alex's stand. She's prickly, but I found something she's passionate about. These are incredible pieces of work, Beatrice, I say. That's all I mean. I really admire them, and so that must mean I admire the artist. She says nothing for a moment. I've never known anyone who can pause a conversation like her, turn things over in her mind before she decides where to go. Thank you. You know what it's like to put something of yourself, of your heart, into the world for other people to touch and mock and spoil. It's the hardest part, much harder than making the thing, no? I'd always enjoyed showing off my work and how clever it made me look, and by the time I was 12 I knew writing was my way out of Kilmarnock. But I understand what she means anyway. Of course, I say. But when someone gets what you're trying to do, it's all worth it, isn't it? She pauses again. She touches my elbow almost too fleetingly to notice. Yes, yes it is. When the exhibition is finished, I say, my gulp surely audible, would you like to get dinner? I doubt practice seducers feel like they're 14 years old, but you work with what you've got. Of course, we're all going anyway to Broadway. I thought you knew. That wasn't quite what I meant. Perhaps tomorrow, the two of us? Once again, the pause, the deep reflection packed into a quarter of a second. Whoever said the Spanish were impulsive and mercurial had never met Beatrice Bernat. I don't think that's a good idea, she says. I'm not very good at, and the last time I, well, I don't think it would end happily. How do you know? This isn't about Hannah's scheme now. It's not even about fragile null vanity, or not much. She shrugs. I don't like risks, and I hardly know you. Not well enough to trust you. 
ludicrously, given that this making this work is worth 30,000 euros to me. I don't want to push her. There's a vulnerability just below the surface that I can sense and don't want to disturb. I'm sorry, I say, I didn't mean to unsettle you. And I really do like the collages, I wasn't just saying that. She smiles again, more relaxed and maybe relieved. I'll sell them when I have a few more, she says, maybe 50 euros each. But choose one to keep, my gift. I look away before I can stop myself. I'm touched because we both know how much these pieces mean to her. Have I said something wrong? Her eyebrows knit together. No, I say, you've done nothing wrong at all, Beatrice. And if you're serious, the one with the cats is just beautiful. She beams. Once we pack up the exhibition, it's yours. As I smile, she rips a strip off the red paper tablecloth the exhibits are standing on. Write down your number on that, she says, making to walk off. Perhaps I'll text you. And with that, she's gone. I have to admire the poise. No opportunity for me to respond. No giving me her number. All the control is hers. I realise that, 30,000 euros or not, Beatrice is someone I would very much want to get to know anyway. Oh, so how do you decide on what crime to write about? And I'm curious what sort of research do you do to write a perfect crime? I'm quite impressed that it's 30,000 euro, not 300,000, not like um, a life changing, you know what I mean? Not like it's not 300,000, not 3 million, it's 30,000. So it's like enough to maybe tempt. But I'm so curious about it now. So, yeah, so how did you decide what crime to write about? Uh, the way this one came about, the first thing that came into my head was the, the relationship between the two central characters, Tommy and Beatrice. So I knew that I wanted them to have a relationship, and I knew roughly how I wanted that relationship to play out. And so it was then thinking about what kind of crime would facilitate that relationship. So this isn't something that I want to be a murder mystery. This isn't something where I want them running around chasing after a lost artifact. This is something where I want a relationship to develop between them that is based fundamentally on a lie, that she feels something about him, but she doesn't know that he is setting out to seduce her. And, and as the novel unfolds, he starts to think that maybe that's not such a good deal. And the 30,000 euros point, I think, is really important because if it is a life-changing sum of money, his behaviour is very different. But he starts to think as he gets closer to her, actually, is this worth 30,000 euros? Wouldn't I be better off just being a stand-up guy and being who she wants me to be? And he's got that sum of money in the background, which is ticking away for him. He spent the advance on a book that he hasn't written. So he knows that he needs the money, but he also realises that he can't do the crime part of things and, and be what he wants to be for Beatrice. So the way that I structured and designed the crime was around facilitating that relationship and making it unfold and have the right beats as the novel un unravel. Fascinating. Could we have our final reading, please? Yes, of course. So, um, this is, is later on in the novel, um, where he's starting to, to worry about the heist uh, and the Russians who are behind it, who've been setting him up. And he, he's gone to watch a football match in a bar with his, his friend Ignacio, who he thinks is a, a little bit involved with that. So, um, here we are. I meet Ignacio at Periquito. We'd get a better TV in one of the clinical sports bars in Pobol now, Barceloneta. But when Espanol are playing at home, this is the next best thing to being at the match. I feel overdressed in jeans with a linen shirt and jacket. Pretty much everyone else, including Ignacio, is in an Espanol shirt. The budgies in their cage share the excitement, or at least agitation, but the TV is turned up so loud that chirping is drowned out. 
The game is a scruffy 1-1 draw, and I miss Espanyol's goal trying to preempt the half-time rush for the one toilet. Ignacio, unusually for him, is pensive and uncommunicative, which I put down to Espanyol's uninspiring performance and not being able to smoke indoors. The only time I ever see him go three-quarters of an hour without a cigarette is when we watch football. After the game, the other Espanyol supporters clear out within ten minutes. Paraquito isn't somewhere you hang out for the ambience, unless you're Ignacio, and once again we're outnumbered by the budgies. Ignacio gets his cigarettes out and beckons me outside, where he immediately lights up. All in all, I'm feeling pretty shy. I'd nurse one beer through the whole match. Ignacio is sulking. I'm still half hungover, and Beatrice hasn't responded to my text. It's not like a, I'm a teenager waiting on that, but if she's giving me the shoulder, it's going to make all the access code bollocks that much more difficult. We sit down at a wonky plastic table and Ignacio takes a drag of his cigarette, leans back and unfurls like a flower catching the sun. Rosa, one of the bar staff, appears in her budgie t-shirt with a couple of beers. What the hell, as long as we avoid cocktails, I'll be fine. I gotta to talk to you, man, Ignacio says. You had two hours. He raises a calming hand. We were watching the football. Yeah. I was asking some questions, he says. The Russians. I take a careful sip of my beer. Why? Last time, you know, I thought maybe you were involved with them. Not really. Not at all. Listen, these are bad people. I wouldn't have thought Hannah would touch them. If she's doing something for them and you're helping her, you need to stop. I reach for one of his cigarettes from the packet on the table. I thought you didn't, he says. Only on special occasions. He flicks up his lighter and I take my own unsteady pull, feeling the rush flowing out from my chest. I would never have set you up with Hannah if I'd known, he says. I thought it was just a kind of running round I did for her. You're scaring me, Ignacio. Also, it's a flat-out lie. He'd known Hannah wanted someone with a specific background, so it had never been about parcel drop-offs and the like. These guys will fuck you up if you cross them, Tommy. I take another drag. Hannah said the same. If you can get out, my friend, get out. I heard the Russians had something big going down. You don't want to be part of it. I say nothing while I think. A cigarette is a great way of buying time. Ignacio is not a crook, exactly, but he knows some shady types. He's certainly better informed about the Russians than I am. I put my glass down. I've never met the Russians. I don't know the Russians. But I think they're Hannah's clients. And she's paid me. Quite a lot of money. Ignacio squints. Give the money back. Walk away. Wouldn't that piss them off? He shrugs. I don't know how deep you are with this. But if I was you, buddy, I'd give Hannah back the money and I'd skip Barcelona for a few months. Maybe for good. This is my home. No, you might like it here, but it's a rich kid's game for you. Is that what you think? Ignacio stubs out his cigarette. That you're a rich kid, or you're playing. If I was rich, why would I be working for Hannah, or live in one room in Gracia? You're telling me you couldn't get on a plane tomorrow and go home. I stand up. You've got the wrong idea about me, pal. I'm flat broke. I've got no publisher and no home in Scotland. It's here or nowhere. So if you're hanging out with me because you think I'm a trust fund brat, you fucked yourself. Hey, I'm trying to help you, dude. He slumps back in his seat and runs a hand through his hair. What are you not telling me? I say as I stand over him. He raises his hands defensively. Don't put this on me. Fuck you, Ignacio. If you've got something to say, say it. Otherwise, he stands up clumsily, knocking his chair back. No, fuck you, man. 
You just do your thing, see where it ends up. Seems like Carmen was right about you. Right about what? Well, I'm already talking to his back. Wow. So where would you like us to buy Catfish Alley? So Catfish Alley is published by Spellbound Books, and you can get it on Amazon either as an ebook or a print-on-demand paperback. Wonderful. So, Tim, thank you so much for being my guest, for reading to us and talking to us about the book. And it's been a treat. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. It's been real fun. Anytime.